Positively Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Bonnie Finnerty, Education Director at the Federation, and I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Maria Gallagher, the Legislative Director. How are you today, Maria? I am excited to be here today, Bonnie. Thank you for uh, having me. I am so excited today, too, because we are very fortunate to have a very special guest joining us all the way from Ireland, one of my favorite places. <laughs> and in light of this, we're going to spend the entire podcast talking with Anne McElhenney, who actually was the keynote speaker at our Celebrate Life Banquet in 2018. So let me tell you a little bit about Anne. Anne McElhenney is an award-winning journalist, filmmaker, public speaker, and podcaster. She is the author of the best-selling New York Times book, Gosnell, The Untold Story of America's Most Prolific Serial Killer. The book debuted at number three on Amazon and sold out three days after publication. She has produced several films, plays, and podcasts with her husband, Fellum, including FBI Lovebirds Undercovers, Frack Nation, the Ann and Fellum Scoop podcast, the Harvey Weinstein Trial Unfiltered podcast, Mind Your Own Business, and Not Evil, Just Wrong. McElhenney has also made documentaries for the BBC, CBC of Canada, and RTE in Ireland. McElhenney has also written for or is a regular contributor to an array of international media organizations that include CNN, Fox News, ABC, and BBC. She is a regular on a number of U.S. talk radio shows, including The Hugh Hewitt Show, The Eric Metaxas Show, The Dennis Miller Show, and The Dennis Prager Show. Anne is an entertaining and sought after public speaker, and she appears regularly through the Young America's Foundation. We are honored and excited to have Anne join us today for Positively Pro-Life. Welcome, Anne. It's lovely to be here. I, I, try, I don't even feel like I'm talking to people in another country. Finnerty and Gallagher? Yes. <laughs> seriously, seriously. I'm talking to my own people here. You know? It's lovely, it's lovely, right. lovely, to, lovely to join you, ladies. We just don't have the lovely accent. That's all. That's right. <laughs> Very and good. What was the genesis for your new podcast? Yeah. So you know, so there's this huge genre, by the way, of people who listen to true crime podcasts, um, and. You know, the very famous one, a lot of young people would have heard of called Serial, which was produced by NPR. 450 million people have downloaded it worldwide. Um, and podcasting, as you girls know very well, is an incredibly innovative way to get in touch with an audience everywhere. And there is no barriers to entry and the gatekeepers are few. And it's it's just quite a unique way. And what we realized when we wrote the book, when we wrote the book, Gosnell, was that by, by making the, the story a true crime story, which it is, it's an extraordinary true crime story, we, we, got, we managed to talk to people who really aren't interested, either aren't interested in hearing about abortion or have their minds made up. Um, and these are the audience we really need to be talking to because these are the people who actually don't know what abortion is. So we decided to make a true crime podcast about the Gosnell story. And people can, it's not, it hasn't, it hasn't um, been downloaded yet, 
but people can immediately today now go to serialkillerpod.com serialkillerpod.com and sign up for free and the moment we release the, the episodes which we're planning to release the same day as the row decision comes down uh, they will arrive all of the episodes will arrive in your inbox and we need people to listen to this this podcast is extraordinary we have unbelievable interviews with kermit gosnell in prison we have amazing interviews with detective jim wood the detective who put kermit gosnell away forever for his crimes we have interviews with christine wexler the assistant district attorney we have interviews with victims it's it's really very very powerful and we also talk to people like molly hemingway about the media suppression of this story so it's an incredibly important addition to the education of the world about this story. And this story has the power to change hearts and minds because it did mine. I've already signed up, Anne, and I, I can't wait to listen to it. And we've already put it on our social media um, because we want as many people as possible to listen to this. Thank um, you. I read your book and I saw the movie, Goss Now. Um, and I, I want to ask you, how is it that two journalists from Ireland end up covering the Gosnell case, which was based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Yes. Well, while, I'm, while I am talking to you from Ireland, I'm just briefly in Ireland. I actually live in the United States. I live in, in California. But um, I suppose what we so my husband is a veteran journalist. Uh, he worked for the Financial Times, the UK Sunday Times. He covered the troubles in Northern Ireland. And he has an incredible nose for news and an incredible belief in journalism when it's done at its best and journalism is not having a great uh, day or week or year or decade in fact so it's a, it, de, journalism has never been at a lower ebb and I suppose what we're trying to do as journalists is do the job that journalists are supposed to do which is tell the stories and just tell the truth just tell people what's going on this story about Kermit Gosnell is extraordinary in every possible way and it is, it is of interest to the public in every possible way. And yet you had all of these mainstream media outlets, every one of them, deciding to either not report on it at all or do a very cursory drop. I mean, you'll hear very often the mainstream media, you know, when we criticize them for their coverage of, the, of Gosnell, they'll say, we did. Oh, no, we did. We did cover it. No, no. I'll tell you how you know when, when the New York Times wants to cover something like Trayvon Martin, like the Ferguson story. You get nothing but that story, wall to wall, continuously, on, in every possible format, over and over and over again. Doing a story once doesn't mean covering a story, and particularly a story of this magnitude. Um, you know, Michael Brown is a very good example, obviously very important story for lo in lots of ways. However, you know, covered at a, an extraordinary level, also inaccurately covered because they said that the hands up, don't, you know, hands up, don't shoot never happened. You know, there's a lot of that. But there was in the end of the, of the day, there was one person who died, Michael Brown, who died one person. In the case of, of, of Kermit Gosnell, you had the grand jury who were made up of regular folk from Pennsylvania. And in fact, made up of a lot of people who were very pro-choice, who, who, who actually said this man killed thousands. This man is probably the biggest serial killer in, in American history. That was a, Terry Morn from ABC News, not exactly a pro-life activist. That's what he said. And yet here's this story that many people still haven't heard. I mean, I've, I've been, you know, sometimes, you know, you're on the road and you meet somebody casually and you mention it. And it's like, oh, who's, I've never, I've never heard of, I've never heard of this guy. Everyone needs to hear about this guy. 
for all kinds of reasons. I mean, the, even the public health implications of what happened. The fact that the Department of Health, I know you are, you ladies are, I think you guys said you were in, in Harrisburg today. I have, I have nothing but bad things to say about Harrisburg as well, you know. Um, you know, what, what happened in Harrisburg, in the Department of Health in Harrisburg, is, is, is so shocking and chilling and remains shocking and chilling to this day the neglect, the level of neglect that happened there. And I'm not even, forget about, the, like, even forget about the abortion issue for a moment. What these people did because of their, you know, because of their, you know, completely unbiased, unhinged, you know, devotion to abortion, because of that, what they did and how they endangered children and women is, is, is unforgivable. For 17 years, this man's premises was not, uh, inspected by these people in Harrisburg. These are what my my father used to call them, you know, permanent pensionable jobs. You know, he used to always have, he was a businessman of, you know, moderately successful, not very successful businessman. And I remember he was always fascinated by people who had pensionable jobs, permanent pensionable jobs. There's nothing like it. The money just keeps on coming in. So these people were sitting in Harrisburg with these beautiful salaries, people who were working in something called the Department of Health, supposed to be taking care of the health of the people of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and their dereliction of duty is it, it is it is a hard to imagine a greater dereliction of duty than what they actually did. They allowed this man, and it's not like they weren't complaints. The complaints were up to the ceiling. There were there was every kind of complaint. There were handwritten complaints. There were hand there were there were complaints that were hand delivered, and they still didn't inspect. Two women died, and they still didn't inspect. Can you believe that? You know, and this is not, you know, you are not, you, you're in Pennsylvania. You are not in a backwater. This is not, you know, this is not a developing country. This is not the middle of nowhere. This is a highly developed, highly sophisticated state in the United States of America in this century allowed two women to die. And the people in charge in Harrisburg didn't think it was worth their while or their inconvenience to get in a car and go and see what happened and walk across the threshold. And these are the same people. And I love the quote from the, from the grand jury. These are the people who closed down nail salons because they found dust. You know, these are the people who will close down a nail salon. And they allowed these two women, Samika Shaw, a young African-American mother who died. They allowed that to happen and they didn't inspect the clinic. They allowed Karnamaya Monger, who died, a Bhutanese refugee who had spent 20 years in Nepal in a refugee camp, only to come to America and be dead four months later. And they still didn't uh, inspect the clinic. And these are the same progressives, by the way, the very same progressives who would, have who would you know, identify themselves as caring deeply about African-Americans, who would identify themselves as caring deeply about refugees. And this is exactly what they think about refugees, and this is exactly what they think about African-Americans. They couldn't care less in Harrisburg. I, you know, you've heard me speak about this before when I spoke at the dinner. I, I cannot, it is unfathomable to me, and I have a lot of people in my family in the, med in the medical world, doctors and nurses, a lot of people in our family. Um, and I just think that this, this is the most extraordinary dereliction of duty, most extraordinary, um, you know, where the Hippocratic oath that, you know, do no harm, care for the people of, these are, these are dreadful people that did a dreadful thing. Um, and of course we have to acknowledge that a lot of that rot came from the very top. And when I say the very top, I'm talking about a Republican governor, Tom Ridge, who start, who really is quite responsible for a lot of the rot when he, you know, 
said basically that, you know, he wouldn't do anything that would stand in the way of women's choice. And he felt that inspecting the clinics would do that. But I think even he didn't possibly envisage the, 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 the lengths to which the people who worked for him would go to protect this institution of abortion. And Anne, if it were not for a drug raid on Gosnell's clinic, none of this would have been discovered. So for those listeners who may not know some of the really disturbing details about the clinic, could you just take a little bit of time to describe what investigators found the night of the raid? Yes. Um, you know, just just extraordinary. Um, and by the way, this allows me to to speak about my dear, dear friend, Detective Jim Wood, who is, you know, the man most responsible for for, for putting uh, Gosnell uh, behind bars forever. You know, and, and, and basically what happened was on top of everything else that Gosnell was doing, Gosnell was selling um, prescriptions. He sold prescriptions for opioids. And Pennsylvania has a massive opioid problem. And he was at one point, um, I think, the number three highest supplier of opioids to drug addicts. Kermit Gosnell was. Um, and Jim Wood was working for the DA's office and as a, as a drug enforcement officer and, you know, going undercover and doing drug deals to try to find the kingpins. And during one of those routine um, investigations of his, and we have the tape, I mean, you'll hear it when people, uh, when people listen to the podcast, we have the actual tape of the day when he and his partner are doing this undercover buying of these drugs and they talk to one of these um, drug dealers and, and, and they say, look, can we, can we cut past the middleman? And can we just, who's the guy? Who's the guy we can get the, who, who can we get these prescriptions from? And, and, he, and, and this voice says, this woman that they're dealing with says Gosnell and they go Darnell and, he, and she says, no, Gosnell. And then she spells out the name. And it's a chilling moment when you realize. And so then that obviously advanced the investigation. And then they, as you say, they had this raid on the clinic um, where, you know, a number of agencies came together. The Drug Enforcement Agency, the DA's office, the Philadelphia police and members of the Harrisburg Department of Health, two of them were asked to, to join on the night of the raid. And they went in and what, what, what hit them first was the smell was this extraordinary smell of death, the smell of, of rotting corpses, because Gosnell had had a dispute with his hazma, you know, with his um, the stericide company that were taking away the baby's bodies. And he was piling up the bodies in the basement and, and they were rotting. The, the other thing that they came across, and, you know, this is meant to be a health facility, a health clinic, are these cats walking around the clinic walking in and out of treatment rooms. And then they saw these women, you know, stretched out, you know, half dressed in a terrible state on these lazy boy, on lazy boy chairs and the lazy boy chairs all, you know, stained with blood. Um, and the whole place, absolutely filthy, absolutely disgusting um, and, ver and weird, like super weird. So in the reception area, there were two massive tanks with turtles in them. And, and they, 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 they did the raid at night because Gosnell would be working in Delaware at another clinic during the day. And then he would come to the Pennsylvania clinic in, to the Philadelphia clinic in the evening. And, you know, he sort of drove in at about eight o'clock and Jim Wood went up and said to him, you know, we have a, we have a search warrant for this, for these premises. Um, and Gosnell sort of said, Oh, you know, Oh yeah. Okay. No problem. And he has this very soft voice, very weird. And he, he said, can I start, would you mind if I just feed the turtles first? And so he goes along, he takes this bag with these clams out of it, crashes these clams together and then starts feeding these turtles. I mean, and these law enforcement officers have never seen anything like this before in their lives. This is crazy. And it just goes on and on and on in terms of craziness. And 
and and uh, and and disturbing things that happened, including um, when Jim Wood and one of the other detectives are like walking through some of the different rooms and come across like a room where people had their peanut butter and jello sandwiches, like a kitchen for the staff. And they're on a, like on these, on these shelves, they find row upon row upon row of babies' feet that have been stored, that he's cut the feet off these babies and stored them and kept them like as trophies. And, it, you know, and it, and it goes on and on like that. I mean, it was, it was a shocking, shocking place, you know, and they discover all these people who are working there posing as, an, as professional medical uh, people, none of whom, none of whom were, were medically qualified to be there. Basically, these are people who had, you know, about a sixth grade education, were basically illiterate, had multiple, you know, issues, social issues like alcoholism, drug addiction, um, abuse, uh, you know, some kind of trauma and abuse in their past. And this is who he had working for him in this what what was became known as the House of Horrors. But that first night was very, very shocking. And the, and the detectives were there through the night interviewing people. They separated all the workers and interviewed them so they couldn't collaborate on their stories and started starting to hear these incredible stories of what was going on there. Um, and this is where they discovered, you know, in some ways they, they weren't, you know, they were aware that at some level that this was an abortion clinic, but that was not their interest. Their interest was obviously in this drug case. But then they had heard about Karnamaya Monger dying. And when they were there and... And Kermit Gosnell was there and, and Jim Wood gave the search warrants, which included, which included at that point, because Jim Wood had heard about Karnamaya Monger and really wanted to find out what had happened to her. So he had a search warrant for anything to do with Karnamaya Monger. And Karn, at, at that point, Karnamaya Monger was dead. I think it was four months. And, and Gosnell says, oh, come here. You want to, you know, you want to hear about Karnamaya Monger. And in the fridge, in one of the fridges, in a bag, in a clear bag, was her um her baby uh Karnamaya Monger's baby and you know and 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 and, and, and casually Kermit Gosnell said that, well there's the baby you know um and and Jim could see the baby could see the baby through the bag you actually met Kermit Gosnell what was that experience like awful like extraordinary in every possible way. Very, very, very bizarre. I mean, you know, and, I, and there's almost a comical aspect to it because when I went there to the to the prison, I pres, you know, and in Huntington, your, your your listeners know where that is very well. I presumed it would be like in the movies, right, where there'd be that kind of the pane of glass and maybe the telephone and all of that, and we'd be separated by some kind of division. And not not at all, not at all is that the case in Huntington. We went into what what seemed like a really you know quite a quite a casual um, environment, um, um, a, a visitor's room where other visitors were there and there were kind of these low tables and casual chairs. And uh, I mean, the first thing that strikes you, we sat there for a while and then he turns up and he's incredibly tall, very, you know, well, you know, elegant looking gentleman. Um, and he, very tall, as I said, arrives and he, you know, and he's he's a highly manipulative person. I've learned that through knowing him for many years now, and have been communicating with him for years now. Um, he did a thing where I was there with my husband, with Phelan McAleer, and he was sitting beside me up against a wall. and And Gosnell comes and puts puts his chair in front of me, and then pulls the chair in so that his legs are on both sides of my legs, if you know what I mean. Um, and then throughout the interview, we were there for almost three hours. He kept touching my leg and apologizing. But he knew exactly what he was doing. He was very, you know, and he has this very soft voice. 
And he has this very, you know, if, if you imagine, I mean, sometimes I, I, you know, I imagine, you know, when you hear, you think about prison, I mean, it's the most frightening prospect, right, to be in a prison. And, you know, you get just would fill you with dread. He, well, I can tell you one thing. He's, he's got this very soft voice. He's really casual. He, t- he talks about being disappointed that he didn't get into the poetry class, um, that he's reading the Koran, that he's in the band. And, you know, and you're thinking... <laughs> You know, and I, I, the way I used to describe it was he had the demeanor of someone who was just coming in to have gin and tonic after the 18th hole. You know, he had that kind of relaxed demeanor. Um, but he did a, a number of things that were interesting. I mean, obviously, we wanted him to talk. So we asked him a lot of, you know, open ended questions and allowed him to talk. And he loves talking. Um, but then, you know, we decided we were going to go and ask him those difficult questions, like why did he manipulate the ultrasound to make the, the babies look smaller than they were? And he would, once you asked him anything detailed where you, where you were showing him that you actually knew a lot, he would drop, he would drop his head and sort of drop his hands and do it and then say, oh, so you know about that. You know, this is what he would say, you know, mm-hmm. um, ex- extraordinary. And I mean, you know, there's some certain things that really stick out in my mind. I mean, one of the things that was extraordinary was. He talked about having, you know, been in Poland at one point and he, that he had visited Auschwitz. And he used a word repeatedly to describe Auschwitz, um, which I have never heard of before. He said impressive. And he said impressive over and over and over again. And particularly impressive was the, the, the collection of little small shoes of the children that had died. And he has an obsession with feet. He talks about feet an awful lot really obsessed, you know, and, and I know from Jim Wood, because when you're in, you know, when you're, when you're um, being held on murder charges and you're, you know, being held in a jail, they're, they are allowed by law to listen to your phone calls, obviously. And, and Jim said like a lot of the phone calls, he'd be talking to people about his feet and about that he hadn't got the right shoes. And, and when we were there in the prison with him, he did, he started this shoe business, you know, oh, look at my feet. You see how big my feet are? And this kind of thing. And at one point he did this thing where he, he put his hand up you know, up towards Phelan, like, almost like, um, you remember the guy in Star Trek, you know, where he does that, you know, yeah. uh, uh, what, is, what is it, be free or whatever, the thing the guy used to do with the fingers. And I thought, I thought, my God, what's he doing with the hand? And it was, he wanted to show Phelan how big his hands were. Um, and then you look at those hands and you think of what that hand, those hands have done, those hands have wrought over years and years and de- decades and decades of destruction and violence, extreme violence um, and murder and it, it's very chilling. It was very chilling. And I can tell you when we eventually left, you know, at the end of the interview, and I, I won't get into it here, but, you know, he started getting into really just, he tried, he, I knew exactly what he was doing once he started. He started saying stuff about women's, you know, bodies and stuff and women's biology, let's say, um, and kind of being disgusting and about it. And, you know, and you'd know all about that. And, you know, he'd be saying to me, like, we were friends. And I just thought, you know what? I sat there and I thought, you know what? I've, I've got enough now. I've heard enough now. And you don't get to, you don't get to do this, you know, because I think he was trying to, um, you know, I think he was trying to, 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 to upset us or to upset Phelan. And I just thought, you know what? You, you don't get, and I just looked at Phelan and I said, yeah, that's it. We got to go now. And, uh, and I remember getting in the car. I remember, I remember we drove from there and you, you guys know where it is. And we drove directly from there to Philadelphia and, uh, we didn't talk for a really long time in the car. And I remember a friend of ours, the guy actually, uh, Boris Zelkin, who wrote the music for the Gosnell movie, is a beautiful person. I remember he had said to me, why don't you listen to this in the car, you know, whatever. And I hadn't listened to it. And it was some Chopin. 
And of course, Gosnell uh, plays Chopin and talks about himself very loftily as a piano player. And we played this incredibly beautiful Chopin music and drove through the countryside and there was water, you know, there was kind of rain on the window of the car and it was just chilling and frightening. And, but the, but the thing that was interesting was we drove and drove and, and we'd stopped in a restaurant in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia to meet Jim Wood. So talk about going from the, you know, the most appalling and frightening monster to meeting this beautiful person that Jim Wood is, this wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, and I remember I just said to Jim, we just, you know, we just left Gosnell. And he said, yeah, you just left the devil. We've just got a couple of minutes left. And I'm wondering, can you tell us about baby boy A and how he yeah. affected you? Yes. And I'm glad you asked. I mean, you know, there's so many things about this story that, I mean, obviously this has dominated my life for years and, and the, and the life and death of baby boy A was, is, is obviously hugely significant in every kind of way because he, he's very much the reason why Gosnell is in prison today. And he was born on the 12th of July, the same birthday as my father. And I just almost, I've always felt that there was something very, um, I just think there's something very special about that. And, and, and when, and for, and for, the, for this new podcast and for, um, for the play that we had on in New York as well, we, we were, I was going back and back over all the testimony um, and all the witness testimony um, from both the grand jury, you know, people that we got and also from the trial. And, uh, you know, obviously for the trial, they went into excruciating detail about the day that, that baby boy A died. And it's, 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 it's really, it's really shocking. I mean, because he was born alive and he, you know, he, he, he moved and he tried to curl up. And, you know, they interviewed a neonatologist and asked the neonatologist, you know, what, what would a baby like this? And, and he, he said, babies, little preemies like that, he said, they're really cold. You need to warm them up. They, they don't like harsh lighting. They need to be kept in a nice, darker kind of space and just, and just loved and be taken care of. And this child was thrown into a Tupperware container and, and he curled and his legs were hanging over the, tur- the Tupperware container. Cara, uh, Kareem across one of the witnesses to, the, to his short life, she, she was asked in the court to stand up and show the jury what it looked like, what he looked like when he curled up. And she showed him, you know, she showed herself, she stood up and she moved herself into the sort of fetal position. Can you imagine the, the, the shock of the, of, the, of, the, uh, of the jury listening to this extraordinary story? And then to make it even worse, which is just awful, this, but anyway, he, then Gosnell, after a period of time, Gosnell came and cut the neck of the baby, cut him with the scissors, and he still didn't die. He was still alive. And again, the neonatologist was questioned about this. And he said that that, 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 that absolutely yeah, could, was, was possible because that the injury to the back of the neck would not immediately, um, it would not, you know, would, would not guarantee death and that the child would have suffocated quietly to death and would have, you know, would have suffered terribly. And my husband makes the most beautiful point about baby boy A that I just love, which is that you could live a very, very long life and never do anything very significant, significant. And here's a boy who lived for one day and has possibly changed the whole world. And I think his influence will go on forever. You know, uh, people and write to me all have the time. To leave it there. Uh, oh, absolutely. It, it's, it's wonderful what you're doing in terms of getting Thank this you. message out. Thank you. Positively Pro-Life is made possible through the generous support of the members of the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation all across the Commonwealth. Thanks for joining us. And remember, there's always a reason to choose life.